This is Lead Like It Matters to God, and I'm Rich Stearns. I started this podcast to explore a critical leadership question. How should Christian leaders live out their faith at work? Over the course of my career, I've been the CEO of a toy company, a luxury goods company, and a large Christian ministry. And I've always believed that a leader's character is more important to God than a leader's accomplishments. On each episode, I'll be speaking with a seasoned Christian leader to explore their leadership journey and the values and qualities they believe to be most important in a leader. My guest today is Gary Haugen, the founder of the International Justice Mission. Gary's been a passionate advocate for human rights for his entire career. And in the mid eighties, he served on the executive committee of the National Initiative for Reconciliation in South Africa, chaired by then Bishop Desmond Tutu. In the 1990s, Gary was deployed by the Department of Justice with the United Nations to serve as the officer in charge of the investigation of the Rwanda genocide. In 1997, he left the Justice Department to found the International Justice Mission, a nonprofit organization working in 14 countries whose mission is to combat human trafficking and slavery, violence against women and children, and police abusive power. Gary's the author of several books, including Good News About Injustice, and The Locust Effect, Why the End of Poverty Requires the End of Violence. Gary, I've been a huge fan of yours for more than 20 years now, and I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Rich. Great to be with you, and congratulations on the book. Hey, thanks so much. I, I have to tell you, though, Gary, after reading your bio, I, I feel kind of like a slacker, because when you were in South Africa working on apartheid reconciliation with Desmond Tutu, yeah, I was at Parker Brothers Games uh, selling Monopoly and Nerf balls. And when you were investigating the Rwanda genocide in the 90s, I was the CEO of Lennox China, focusing all my energy on selling expensive dishes to the wealthy. And I guess, you know, my life story goes to show you that God can intervene in our lives at any age uh, to redirect us uh, uh, according to his purposes. But my first question kind of relates to this. How early in your life did you know that you wanted to get into the field of human rights? And I, I asked this question because I don't think most young people really know what they want to pursue when they're in their 20s or sometimes even in their 30s. So how early did you feel this call? Yeah, well, I, I actually, when I was a young person growing up, uh, thought I would go into politics one day. And, um, and actually, it was in college that... I started to become much more interested in international matters. And the, the crisis in apartheid South Africa was part of that for me. That was the big issue when I was uh, on a college campus in, in the 1980s. And as I started to learn more about politics, which is really about going back home, running often and early, and sort of just building a real base back home uh, uh, politically, I just, I wasn't really passionate about those issues in the same kind of way. I was starting to acquire a real interest in things more broadly around the world. When I graduated from university in 1985, you'll remember there was the famine in Ethiopia mm -hmm. and there was the crisis in South Africa. And so I was just very interested in exploring international matters. And so it didn't, so, so that would have been, I was 22, I think when I graduated and IJM uh, was launched in 1997, so I would have been 34 then. So that would have been, you know, what, 12 years 
of being really unclear about what would uh, be emerging. But I, I, I did have this interest and it connected to my passion for uh, trying to follow Christ in the world. But it took, you know, more than a decade yeah. to figure out where it would land. I think um, for younger leaders, it's often very frustrating. Sometimes your first job is not your dream job. And and uh, but I always tell my kids and I tell younger people that, you know, your first job may not be your dream job, but it could be a stepping stone to your dream job. Because I think the way our lives play out is we move from one experience to another. And each time we do a certain kind of work, we learn things about ourselves. We learn things about our strengths and our gifts and our weaknesses and our passions. And then hopefully the next job we have is more aligned with that. And uh, I think the story of my life has been that a career is a very long time and there's an opportunity to reinvent yourself multiple times during a, a long career. So I try to encourage younger people, hey, you know, if this job is not your favorite, um, wait five years, you know, put yourself in play, you know, look at what else is available to you. And, you know, you'll you'll find your way to something that you're really hopefully passionate about um, before you're done. Yeah, I think it'd be very strange if your first job really was your dream job, at least that um, because there's so much about yourself you have to learn and so many skills that also in, in some ways need to be just honed and uh, uh, collected. And um, so I, I, I'm with you on certainly looking back, um, there was an evolution that took place and God made use of all those experiences along the way um, to, to fashion me and to prepare mm -hmm. me for whatever was coming next. You know, I came to World Vision when I was 47 years old. And uh, I remember saying to my wife, why didn't I do this when I was in my 20s? You know, I, I, I just love this work. I'm passionate about helping the poor. And, and she looked at me as only a spouse can and say, because you weren't ready. Sure. You weren't ready in your 20s. God had a lot of work to do with you before you were ready to do something like this. And so, sure. Uh, but I think that's a way to look at it because all of those skills I picked up in my leadership roles in corporations were perfectly applicable to the work I did at World Vision many years later. So sometimes God is preparing you. I like to remind people that Moses was 80 when he got his calling from the <laughs> Lord to lead the people out of Egypt. And, uh, but by 80, he had a resume that was perfect, you know, for the job. Uh, it just took him 80 years to get there. And then God repurposed him and, uh, he called him to to lead the people to the promised land. What I also love about that story, of course, Rich, is when God does speak to him in the burning bush and tells him he's supposed to go to Pharaoh, Moses says, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Mm -hmm. And what he doesn't do is read back to Moses his resume of all the things that, as you say, prepared him really uniquely for that. He doesn't answer that question at all. Instead, he says, I will go with you. And so part of that was just, I think, affirming to Moses, well, at the end of the day, for my purposes, what matters not so much is all of the skills and qualifications um, that you may have, although I'll use those, mm -hmm. um, but, but that, that, that I am with you in where you're going. And that's always been an encouragement to me. Yeah, no, that's a great part of that story, because if we as Christian leaders can just trust God to be in it with us, yeah. uh, leading with us. Um, then that's what, that's where God wants us. He wants us relying upon him, not upon our resumes or our MBAs or whatever 
degrees we might have. You know, I, I want to talk about IJM here. For, the, for our listeners, I think almost everybody's familiar with IJM, but uh, can you give a brief description of the mission and purpose and focus of your work today, especially at IJM? Yeah, IJM exists to seek to protect those who live in poverty from violence. Um, as we would all be familiar with God's call to care for the poor, and as World Vision does so powerfully all around the world, we, we do tend to think of poverty as a uh, a situation where people are, are threatened with hunger or disease or lack of housing or lack of economic opportunity, but the poor are also chronically victims of violence, violent abuse and oppression, and particularly uh, sexual violence against women and girls, forced labor and other forms of slavery, land theft. You'd be familiar with all these things, Rich. Mm -hmm. And so IJM was set up 20 years ago to more than 20 years, almost 25 years ago now to try to protect the poor from violence. And we were doing it first by just working individual cases, trying to take on that individual case of that child that had been sold into a, a brothel or that family sold into a brick factory or that uh, young woman who'd been sexually assaulted in the, in the village and just try to actually rescue her or him or that family out of the situation of abuse, bring the perpetrators to justice for having done that. And then, um, uh, put that, uh, help walk with that survivor of violence to restoration. Now that was sort of IJM in the first 10 years. That was IJM 1.0. IJM 2.0 over the last decade was seeing, well, what if we can actually work in these communities with indigenous local Christian leaders to transform the justice system so it protects millions of those who are in poverty from ever suffering that abuse. And so that's what we manifested last year. I mean, last decade was possible. And so going forward now, we're trying to help work through partners to protect half a billion of the world's poor who are uh, needing protection from violence. So we've moved from direct casework to transformation of justice systems to now trying to work with partners to begin to transform the justice systems that protect half a billion of the world's most vulnerable. Wow. Talk about ambitious goals. Uh, those are those are amazing. And I just want to pick up on that violence point for a second, because uh, it's really a profound truth that when most people think about poverty, that's not the first thing they think. Of. They might think about hunger yeah. or they don't have clean water yeah. or they need a micro loan or, you know, and all of those things are also true. But uh, but violence is really one of those core things. And if you look at the crisis right now on our border, why are so many people flocking to the United States border from Central America? Violence. Violence is driving them from their homes. Um, they fear for their lives. They literally exactly. fear for their lives because of gang violence and other forms of violence, exploitation in their country. And so you know, I always tell people that if you want to solve the border crisis, you've got to go into the Iron Triangle countries and help reduce the level of violence there through, again, working with the government, working with uh, third parties, as, as IJM is doing. And ultimately, that's the these people, nobody wants to leave their home country if, if, they're, right. if they're feeling safe and secure and healthy. And uh, most people don't want to leave their home country. And the people that are doing this, these kind of refugees, migrants, are being driven out by violence. And that's the story of the Syrian refugees and the story of most refugees in the world today. Well, that's right. And, 
you know, it, it can also feel so overwhelming sometimes, the problem of, of violence. And so we get kind of stuck in the hopelessness of it. But what I'm excited about is over the last two decades, it's been demonstrated that you can actually make this violence stop. Mm-hmm. And you're exactly correct that, uh, you know, the, it, it, if people are willing to send their children unaccompanied out of their country, uh, because they're so fearful of the violence, mm-hmm. um, that is something that can only be addressed by bringing real protection and safety to those people in those communities and those homes. And that's what we're seeing is actually now possible. Yeah. You just got um, this report in the last six months in Guatemala, this partnership that we've had uh, with uh, uh, with the Guatemalan government. During COVID, during the last six months, the, their new institute for the protection of survivors of violence have been able to protect more than 4,000 of these um, women and children who were uh, vulnerable to violence. And, you know, it just shows that, um, yes, you can't do everything everywhere, but boy, there are some places of great desperation where, where I think we can make a transformative difference. Yeah, no, that's encouraging to, to hear that. And, uh, I know World Vision has worked in this area as well in many of the communities in which World Vision serves and dealing with the local violence and those issues is often part of the major part of the solution to helping a community move into a more prosperous future for themselves. Yeah, I want to focus a little bit on IJM 1.0, as you described it, because starting a new NGO, non-governmental organization or nonprofit is a more common term. Uh, that's not easy to start a new NGO, a a new nonprofit. And, you know, I have watched you since the beginning uh, of IJM grow the organization as it gained momentum. It attracted new donors. You hired capable staff. You expanded the number of countries in which you work. And since this is a podcast about leadership, I know that there's a lot of entrepreneurial folks out there listening. Um, what were some of the greatest leadership challenges you faced in getting IJM established to begin with? Startups are hard. Yeah, for sure. And of course, what's so vivid for any entrepreneur uh, that is starting something new, there's usually a reason why it doesn't already exist. Uh, either people don't understand the problem or they don't understand the solution or there's no hope that it will actually work. So what I remember in the earliest years is trying to talk to everybody about this idea for a Christian ministry that would try to address the problem of violence against the poor. And 99% of the people either not understanding what I'm saying or not believing it would actually work. And so needing to, to have that sort of clarity and perseverance with this vision and notion that you have while at the same time, Rich, being willing to also subject it to the scrutiny of open questions, right? Because there's nothing sadder than the entrepreneur who just is completely convinced about a really bad idea because they haven't bothered to allow others to actually question it. What's also sad is somebody who, when they're questioned the first or second or third time about something, they just give up. Oh, you're right. It'll never work. So I think one of the hardest things to hold on to is, is to be in that very difficult tension of, man, I've got this conviction that just seems really, really um, true about a need in the world and a way to address it, while at the same time staying very, very open and humble to listening to people who are asking hard questions 
and and are are, are shaking you a little bit off your certainty mm-hmm. with some really good um, uh, challenges. And I, I I think in the early days that was the the the, the tough ground to hold. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the leadership values I write about in my new book is perseverance. And uh, I define perseverance in a couple different ways. But one way, one definition of perseverance is staying the course, having a very, very difficult goal. Yeah. And staying the course almost regardless of the evidence, you know, (laughs) against you. And, you know, I tell the story of when World Vision decided to tackle HIV and AIDS in the early 2000s when research showed us that 97% of Christians in America who were our donors were not interested in helping people with HIV and AIDS in Africa. And so, you know, starting with an audience that didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to give to it, didn't want to care about it. And perseverance was the thing that got us through. We just kind of believed, as you did at IJM, we just kind of believed that this is important. This is right. This is what God would want us to do. And we can't give up because it's hard. You know, we, right. we just can't give up because it's hard. So I think perseverance is one of the qualities that the best leaders uh, have to have, you know, because yeah. every leader is going to encounter tough problems that are hard to solve or crises that come across their desk that they have to react to. And um, you got to be willing to hang in there through the tough times. Yeah, it, it's it's trite to say, but if if it's easy, it's already been done. Um, right. And so if you're going to be something, doing something new and something different, it's going to be hard and you're going to have to persevere. I usually tell people who are thinking about starting an NGO or a new endeavor, it's really just about three questions and then perseverance. The three questions are, is there really a problem or is there a need, really a need? Mm-hmm. Really? You're not just doing what you want to do, but no, there really is a need. Secondly, somebody else isn't already doing it because if they are, then you should just probably help them do that. Or th- and third, uh, can you really add value? Can you actually make a difference? And so if mm-hmm. there really is a need, no one else is doing it, you can really make a difference. After all that, it's going to be, as you said, perseverance. Yeah. No, those are three great questions to ask uh, about a lot of different challenges, whether they're business challenges or you know mission challenges for an organization like IJM. So today, you fast forward almost 25 years. What do you think your greatest organizational challenges are today that you're facing in this stage of your development and growth? And I think probably there's many, as you can imagine, because you would know a tremendous amount just about what it is to scale an endeavor. And Mm -hmm. scale is its own great difficulty. I think at its core, however, our greatest challenge is going to be the development of leaders who can lead the fight against injustice in their own communities. If we are going to seek to protect 500 million of the most vulnerable from violence, this is going to be a very tough struggle in the variety of these communities around the the world. And so it's not going to be sort of outside influences or resources at the end of the day that are gonna make the difference in that struggle. Uh, It's going to come from local, indigenous, national leaders who take up that fight. Uh, And it's going to be our job to come alongside and support them. So uh, as any leader would have experienced, that the extent of your impact is your capacity to develop other leaders. Uh, And if you can't develop uh, other leaders to take forth the vision and to take forth the work, 
you just are going to immediately hit the ceiling of of your impact. Mm-hmm. And IJM is in that place where uh, to be able to go forward now to the to to fulfill what has been demonstrated could be in the world will really depend upon uh, leaders in communities around the world taking up and leading this tough fight. You know, I mean, that's really profound. One of my observations has been that if you look at every achievement of the human race (laughs) over thousands of years, every one of them depended on leaders who formed a group of people and organized them and encouraged them to accomplish something that the leader could not have done by himself or herself. Yeah. So, I mean, every breakthrough, whether it's scientific or business breakthrough, has come from somebody taking a leadership role, organizing a group of people to do something and then making that happen. And and so when I transfer that to the kingdom of God, uh, the way God works in the world is through leaders as well. And all of the achievements of the kingdom of God are about God working through leaders, whether it was Moses or Peter in the New Testament working through leaders or working through leaders today in the church and ministries and, and leaders in the, in the marketplace as well. Our leadership does matter to God. And um, so, and then, then you realize, as, as you just said, that it's critically important to develop the leaders around you because the only thing better than one good leader is many good leaders right. <laughs> in an organization. And as an organization grows, and you found this true as the founder, you know, at first you're the chief cook and bottle washer. You almost have to do everything yourself. Right. Uh, and you'll never grow unless you can raise up and train up leaders underneath you who can take big chunks of responsibility and run with them. And uh, that is the scale challenge that organizations have. Can they find and develop enough good leaders to fuel their growth and the expansion of their, their mission? And uh, so you become a leader of leaders uh, ultimately when you start an organization like IJM. So, And I would guess, Rich, from your own experience too, probably some of the most joyful, satisfying thoughts you have about your career at World Vision is what you can imagine now uh, the the leaders that you developed or poured into or, or somehow mm-hmm. uh, empowered that are now just killing it. They're just, they're changing the, the world. Yeah. That must In be fact, a huge source of joy for you. It is. And, you know, when I retired, um, as you know, World Vision appointed as successor, someone that I had mentored and hired right. and, and, tried to prepare for my job before I left. And as you say, he is killing it. He's doing a fantastic job, Edgar Sandoval. And um, yeah, and I think this is something that's really important in Christian organizations, this uh, succession and making sure that you have uh, people that can step in when your time is up for whatever reason, you you want people that can step in and and carry the torch forward and, you know, continue to lead. So let me, uh, you're not going to like this question. I, I oh, want to good. put at least one question that would make you uncomfortable, but you are a tremendously gifted leader, but I believe that every leader has great strengths, but also has weaknesses, you know, mm-hmm. uh, things you just aren't as good at as you are at other things. And I used to like to use a card game metaphor that if you're dealt a hand of cards, you know, hopefully some of us have a few face cards in our hand. Uh, but we probably also have some threes and fours uh, in our hand. Uh, 
And it's how we play that hand of cards, you know, that determines whether our leadership is, is going to be successful. So if you had to name a couple of things that aren't your strongest suits as a leader, what would they be? And then what do you do about something where you have a weakness? Well, you know, there's some of these weaknesses that are just matters of experience, right? If you think organizationally, um, because I, unlike you, you came into a large organization with tremendous experience at running a large organization. Whereas I started out running myself and then two people, then three people. And so it was just this very incremental learning curve. And um, every time we grew by five more people, I was running an organization I had no experience running. And so that it was, uh, I could name lots, you know, lots of things all along. We're like, wow, I really, I'm not very good at this. I'm not very good at that. Not very good. As you move from discovering, um, yeah, I'm chief cook and bottle washer, but I sure shouldn't be because there's a whole lot yeah. of other things. And some of that's so, sort of technical. But what, But when it comes to sort of like some core weaknesses or difficulties, what I find, Rich, that is most tricky about this is that they actually, the weaknesses tend to be the flip sides of my strengths. Mm-hmm. And so one of my strengths would be, wow, I, 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 I can see some things really clearly sometimes, uh, where it is we ought to go, how to get there and go forward. And so I was just actually having a, a, a session with my uh, leadership team where we were all sharing you know, when we're working together as a group, here's what you really do great. And here's what you do that isn't so awesome for the team. And most of what was being reflected was, Gary, sometimes when you are convinced you're, you're such a, a persuader and you have such convi- strong convictions about things that you're stating it so forcefully that you may appear like you aren't open to being convinced. You may sound dismissive of other people's ideas. And... Um, uh, that, that's a, that's a weakness. That's, that's mm-hmm. difficult. And, but what's also true about it, it is just the flip side of my, um, uh, st- strength. Uh, so there, there are, are a number of these, I, I care too much about what people think of me, Rich. And, um, and that's the flip side of, I'm also a pretty solid salesperson, right? Cause I can figure out in a way, you know, the perspective of another person and I can, um, sort of relate to them well, and therefore mm-hmm. I can craft a, a persuasive argument. That's a strength. The flip side of that is uh, I may care too much what people think about me and mm-hmm. then uh, be managing an impression or a presentation. So you can pretty much go through <laughs> whatever yeah. might be the inventory of my uh, uh, strengths in leadership and see that there is just a a, um, a flip side of 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 weakness, which is why I love in your seventh list of 17 um, characteristics that are so important is you name Mm self-awareness. That I think is critical because we, we lead out of who we are on the inside. And if we're not aware of what's going on on the inside and what the insecurities are and what the, what the uh, sort of driving forces are of obsessive desire or other aspects of, uh, fear, then, then not only do you get to, uh, not only do I as a leader get to be led by those things, but now the whole team is being led by those things, and 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 I'm just unaware of it. So that's why I was, uh, uh, I would, 
I just think it's it's so critical what you've named here, the capacity for leaders to really try to understand themselves on an ongoing basis, because mm-hmm. there's a lot that's going to be tricky about that. You know, that situation you talked about where you're you're in a room with your team and you're making a passionate point of, I think we should do this and this and this. Right. What leaders sometimes forget is um, that leaders are intimidating to those who are underneath them in the organization. A leader has the power over your salary, your promotional, uh, right. you know, opportunities and all of this. And so when you come on strong in a meeting, you know, it takes a pretty remarkable person to say, I'm going to challenge the founder of this organization and disagree <laughs> with him publicly and vehemently. And, and you know what I used to do uh, to deal with this effect, because you shut people down if you're like that, you, they, yeah. they're afraid to say anything. You're the emperor with no clothes, right? Like this is a terrible idea and everybody around the table knows it except the leader and right. he's not listening or she's not listening. God has given us each unique gifts and perspectives if we all contribute, we'll make a better decision. So please, you know, speak up. In other words, give people permission sure. right. to challenge the leader. And I've seen leadership situations where the leader surrounds themselves with sycophants who only praise the leader, the great leader. You're, you're, you're great. We love everything you say. We love your preaching. We love this. We love that. And that turns into a very unhealthy situation over time because the, the emperor does have no clothes. And so I think that's that self-awareness of a leader. What, what is the impact you're having on other people in a meeting or a situation? And how do you mitigate that impact so that, again, the people in the room with you were all made in the image of God and they have unique gifts and talents. And if you just steamroll over them, you're missing out on the richness of God's kingdom. Yeah. And as to the self-awareness, part of it's a, a recognition that we just can't know ourselves as accurately as, as we need to. And so therefore, we're going to need people speaking into our lives mm-hmm. or else we're going to be operating in, in, in reality. That's when Gordon McDonald many, many, many years ago was speaking to a group of ministry leaders and um, made this incredibly, incredibly powerful point that made a huge impression on me. I was, you know, quite young at the time. And he said the, the, the first thing that happens to a leader and keeps happening, the, the more of a leader you become is your detachment from reality. Mm-hmm. Largely because, as you mentioned, you have people around you who are uh, subordinate to your power in some way. And so they are, aren't necessarily going to help you see reality unless you really ask for it. And if you really let people into who you are. And mm-hmm. I think our, our great leadership disasters significantly come from leaders being uh, uh, being closed off from being truly known mm-hmm. and allowing others to speak into their lives because I, I will never be as self-aware on my own uh, yeah. as I would need to be. You know, the other message you send as a leader, um, nobody wants to work for a leader who is good at everything and knows all the answers because if if you know all the answers and you can do everybody's job better than they can do it, then the team, what message are you sending to the team? I don't need you. You know, your your skills are irrelevant to me. I just need you to carry out my wishes. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I just need you to be a lackey to carry out my wishes. And and that's demoralizing to a team. But 
a leader who will listen and actually change their mind because of something somebody else said in the room. And it actually makes me think differently about differently than the way I was thinking when I came into the meeting. Thank you for that contribution. Hey, one last point on that leadership, leaders recognizing their weak suits. So in my case, you know, there were two things that I learned about myself early on. Number one, I had very little interest in balance sheets and debits and credits and all of the financial complexities of an organization. I, I wasn't that good at it and I wasn't that interested in it or passionate about it. So the lesson I learned is wherever I go in leadership, I better have a really solid financial executive at my side who, who knows this stuff, loves this stuff, can keep me out of trouble, can keep me on the straight and narrow, can make sure the organization's healthy. And so I always really invested in having the right CFO and then letting that chief financial officer, you know, you know, speak the truth to me whenever I needed to hear it. And then the second thing I was never very good at was keeping track of a lot of little minutiae details and attention to detail. I've been more, it sounds like you're kind of a big picture guy, like, Hey, I've got this idea. I've got this concept. That was always the thing I loved and I was never good at details. And so I learned eventually if I had a chief of staff or a right-hand person who could manage all of that for me, it could increase my productivity by two or threefold. Sure. uh, Because they could lean into their giftedness uh, and really help multiply, you know, my effectiveness as a leader. So a leader can compensate. It's okay. It's okay to be weak at things. The worst thing is not admitting you're weak at something or not admitting that you're not interested in something that is really important. Um, But if you acknowledge it and name it, then you can compensate for it with the people on your team. And so that's just a piece of advice for for younger leaders. I think sometimes we're afraid to admit our weaknesses because we don't, leaders never show weakness, right? We don't show, um, but that can lead you down a, a bad path because if you don't compensate for those weaknesses, they're eventually going to be find, found out. Better to deal with them, understand them, own them, and and, and then put people around you that can help with those things. Yeah. I think the other sort of powerful leadership uh, maxim is the leader's number one job is to lead in reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just don't think anybody imagines that there is a leader who is, who doesn't have both a combination of strengths and weaknesses and with every strength, some sort of companion weakness. And so mm-hmm. they're just not, going to come close to ever realizing their leadership capacity to the extent they don't have uh, this capacity to assess um, what their uh, uh, weaknesses are that they need to both be on a journey of of sort of transformation of their character in some ways and the way that God wants to actually craft uh, some strength in them. Or as you say, building a team that together um, realizes the potential of the mission. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's just critical for a leader to understand. You know, Gary, one of the things I faced at World Vision was the general apathy of the public towards people suffer, suffering in other countries. I, I just have to kind of state it you know, plainly, mm-hmm. you know, that in America, most of us live in such a bubble that and we have busy lives and busy careers. I found that the greatest challenge I faced with recruiting new donors and supporters to the organization was to break through that bubble of apathy and to get people not just to care about the poor, 
but to be willing to do something about it, you know, to put their money where their mouth was. And uh, so you just said you're a pretty good salesman. And I would have to agree. I've been at some of your banquets and I've heard you speak and uh, you're a very good salesman. But what what, in your opinion, I'm sure you face this as well. In fact, you alluded to it earlier that getting people to understand and care about violence against the poor uh, was your biggest challenge. What were your most effective tools in attracting supporters to the mission of IJM and then keeping them on board, you know, keeping them engaged in the mission? Because I think a lot of nonprofit leaders in particular face this challenge. How do I get more people to care about my cause? It could be molten muscular dystrophy, or it could be heart disease, or, you know, it could be any number of causes, but um, you have to overcome a general lack of interest or apathy in the public. Yeah, I think the first thing in this came to be a hard realization over time was what's so important is, is you're never going to convince everybody. So don't beat yourself up and get exhausted trying to convince those who just don't want to be convinced and are never going to get on board. Move mm -hmm. on and find Shake the dust those. off your sandals. <laughs> exactly. Because that, that has been my sort of experience is that, wow, there were lots of no's, not interested, couldn't care less. But if we kept going, and if we kept doing one thing in particular, and that is transporting people to actually stand with the actual human being that is facing and trembling in the face of violence right mm -hmm. today. Because if you could actually grab that person and you could fly together to that uh, uh, work site in, uh, in South Asia where uh, a family is working as, as slaves in a brick factory, or you could take uh, that a person to go um, stand with that 13-year-old girl in Guatemala who is faced with being um, raped by the assailant who, who's coming at her, there would be no doubt in anybody's mind about what to do next. It'd be like, well, we need to stop this. And so that that raised the, 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 the sometimes tougher problem that we encountered, Rich, which was people didn't think there was anything you could do about violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can do something about hunger. Yes, you can clean up that water source, but I don't know. It just seems so scary and overwhelming. These are like rapists and murderers and and sex traffickers and um, and and corrupt police. Like, what could possibly be done? And so it was really uh, over time seeing that if you can transport people to stand with the person who's trembling, and then you can mm -hmm. show them there's something they could actually do that would bring rescue and transformation to that situation to bring justice. Um, I We have not run out of people who are interested, I think, in seeing that. There are, mm -hmm. there are some who just, regardless of what you do it, are just not going to uh, go with you. Um, but uh, continuing to grow this movement of people who share that story and mm -hmm. mobilize the passionate, because there's people who become passionate about IJM, as, as there are those who compassionate about World Vision, and then they go tell others. And the way the internet now has given the capacity for people to share their passions with their own circles yeah. of influence, that's just explosive. You know, that's right on. And um, putting a human face on a sociological problem right. is critical. I, my early years at World Vision, I'd speak to groups and I'd use a lot of statistics about hunger and lack of clean water and, you know, economic deprivation and everything. And my wife would pull me aside and say, honey, I know you love your numbers and I, I know you love your statistics, but people's 
eyes are glazing over in the audience. Tell them stories. Tell them about the people you've met. Tell them about that farmer and his wife. Tell them about those children in Guatemala that you met. Because stories are the way into the human heart, and stories are what trigger compassion. And I used to say over and over that poverty has a name and a face. And and let me introduce you to some of these people by name and show you their pictures and where possible, take people over to see it for themselves when you can. But I really believe that people that don't seem very compassionate on the surface, you tell them a story about a little girl in a brothel in Cambodia and and how she could be rescued. And 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 all of a sudden, right. they might be crying in their own living room, listening to you tell the story of this little girl on an issue they didn't even care about yesterday, you know, but but you humanize it and you put a face on it. And I think in some ways that's what has to be done at the the, the border crisis, because we're, we're dealing with a border crisis like it's a, a problem to be solved, an issue to be fixed. We're not seeing the human faces of mm. the people who are fleeing for their lives. And uh, and that takes the conversation to a whole different level. Right. Once you see them as human beings made in the image of God and as Christians, people that Christ died for. So how should we treat them and what's the best way for us to uh, think about this problem with their humanity being considered along with our national laws and our immigration uh, procedures and all of that. As you say that, there's two things that come immediately to mind to me. One is, as you say, the, the, the stories of survivors where they speak for themselves of what has happened to them to elevate those voices because we do individual casework, we just are in touch with tens of thousands of individual survivors. And if we can elevate and amplify their stories, those are always the ones that people are listening mm -hmm. to. So they may not be paying, uh, leaning forward in their chair necessarily when I'm up talking, but when that young woman gets up to speak or that, uh, that dad from, uh, uh, from Thailand who is held on a, a fishing boat as a slave and he's sharing his story, wow then people are listening. And the other is impacting young people because of the way in which they seem to rather almost fearlessly come, uh, be willing to be vulnerable and to listen to the hard things. And the impact that that tends to have on an older generation, which has maybe felt a way to feel safe about these things or mm -hmm. rather invulnerable. But the younger generation, well, I've seen it at IJM, and I think World Vision has been wonderful at this as well, is if you can uh, uh, tap into the passion and courage of a younger generation, they can have a, a transformative impact on what happens next. Yeah, no, that's really true. Yeah, young people, I think in every generation, young people are the hope for the future. Uh, it's always been that way. And right. I, I see that passion in younger people as well. Well, Gary, we're... We're just about out of time. I'm just going to do one last thing. I, I, I do this a lot on the podcast. I want to read you a quote from my new book, Lead Like It Matters to God. And I just want you to react to it. You can say, that's total baloney. I don't believe that. Or I agree with that. Or let me add a thought to it. But here, here's the quote. And it's a little bit about, uh, I think it speaks to what you did at IJM in the early years. Here's the quote. It's not enough for a leader just to define reality and help determine a way forward. He or she must totally own the vision of a better future. A new vision doesn't become a reality because the leader sends it out in an email to everyone. 
The leader needs to visibly embody the vision, to eat, sleep, and drink the new vision, day in and day out in full view of the organization. Well, I think that's a helpful preparation for a leader who um, perhaps has that kind of vision, uh, has that kind of passion for a better future. And the, the, the fundamental truth is that that will be contested going forward. That will be tested going forward. And that if, as you write there, if you don't really own that in your core, uh, it won't be sufficient to withstand the struggle that's going forward. Again, you wouldn't need a leader if everyone is already rushing into that future. Mm -hmm. uh, but you actually do need a leader because um, it's going to be hard to get there. And uh, I'm grateful for the, the way you focus here on not so much sort of the, 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 the tinsel of, of shallow results that a leader could maybe point to uh, uh, or some thin definition of success, but what is the deeper uh, character values that are forged in leadership and are drawn from for great leadership? And so... I'm grateful that you've you've given us some uh, very challenging and powerful insights about how we can ask God to help us all be better leaders. Well, thanks so much, Gary. I'll, I'll end with what I started with. You are a leader I have admired since the first day we met, probably in the late 90s. I think we met a couple of years after you started IJM. And I, I'm sure the people listening really benefited from your wisdom today. And I look forward to seeing the next 20 years at IJM to see what God's going to do there. Thanks, Rich, for the encouragement. Yeah, thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks for joining Rich Stearns today on the podcast. And check out his new book, Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. In this book, Rich draws on his experience as a CEO in three different organizations to offer important insights and advice for Christian leaders. Learn more about the 17 leadership values that can transform your own leadership effectiveness. Lead Like It Matters to God is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats.